the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Tuesday edition of The Dan Prof Show. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at danprofshow.com. Podcasts uh, program are there as they are on Spotify and iTunes. On social media, including Parler, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. We begin on this edition with uh, the question as to whether or not uh, Republicans in Georgia in particular, but nationally since the Georgia Senate runoffs on January 5th are national elections and implication, clearly, whether Republicans have learned the lessons that are still being learned in real time from what occurred in the run-up to and including on and including after November 3rd. The Secretary of State in Georgia, Raffensperger, announcing an investigation into these left-wing voter registration, voter relocation advocacy groups yesterday. We have opened an investigation into a group called America Votes who is sending absentee ballot applications to people at addresses where they have not lived since 1994. The New Georgia Project, who sent voter registration applications to New York City, and Operation New Voter Registration Georgia, who is telling college students in Georgia that they can change their residency to Georgia and then change it back after the election. Yeah, it's not just for Andrew Yang anymore. advocating for felonious activity, advocating for voter fraud. It seems like there is, dare I say, a conspiracy to commit voter fraud that may be afoot among uh, these uh, Stacey Abrams satellite organizations. Jonathan Turley on with Martha McCallum yesterday, Jonathan Turley, George Washington law professor, had this to say in reaction to what the Secretary of State announced he would be investigating. And so it's breathtaking that many of these groups are have this rallying cry to protect democracy and all votes should be counted, and yet they are actively subverting the essence of democracy. They're trying to bring in false votes, false voters. And you saw that with the New York Times columnist saying people should move down to Georgia to vote. Uh, This is all just disconnected from the narrative. It is not disconnected from the criminal code. Uh, This would be a, a, a matter of Georgia criminal law. And it is clear that officials are prepared to prosecute people. And so I'm particularly worried about students uh, who are being you know, encouraged to take these steps. They yeah. should not put themselves in this type of precarious position. And Carl Rove made mention that, uh, oh, by the way, just so you know, we're watching the new registrants that have registered to vote in Georgia from November 3rd to the registration, uh, voter registration deadline next week, and we'll be looking into those people to ensure that they meet the residency requirements to actually vote on the January 5th uh, special election or the January 5th runoff election. Newt Gingrich, Georgia Republican himself, you'll recall, 
Uh, he was uh, less charitable than Jonathan Turley, uh, more focused on the political leadership in the Republican Party and for the state of Georgia in the form of Governor Kemp, as well as Secretary of State Raffensperger. Last night on Hannity saying this. Look, I, I think you have to give Stacey Abram a lot of credit. Uh, she dominates Governor Kemp. Uh, she dominates Secretary of State Raffensperger. Uh, in effect, they are subsidiaries of Stacey Abrams. Uh, they're doing things that are out outrageous and illegal. Uh, and uh, it's clear the governor should be asking the state election board uh, to uh, bring Abrams in under oath and find out some of her claims. Well, because some of her claims would imply uh, uh, vote gathering, which is illegal in Georgia. Uh, at the same time, the secretary of state has actually reestablished boxes where you can drop off ballots whose only purpose is vote harvesting, which is illegal in Georgia. Uh, they have not changed the rules on absentee voting, which makes it impossible to find out whether or not uh, the right the person voted who said they were voting, whether or not their signatures match. Uh, it's truly been, to me as a Republican, astounding to have a Republican governor and a Republican secretary of state uh, do such an extraordinary bad job. It is truly a mess, and I frankly hold uh, Governor Kemp and Secretary of State Raffensperger responsible for having allowed this to develop. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Paul Kanger, professor of political science at Grove City College in Grove City, PA, contributor to the American Spectator and author of The Devil and Karl Marx, Communism's Long March of Death, Deception, and Infiltration. Professor Kanger, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Good to be with you. Uh, is uh, Newt Gingrich uh, offering a, a fair assessment of uh, the administration of the forthcoming election by the same Georgia officials in the crosshairs for the one that just completed? Yeah, I think he is, actually. It's, it's interesting. I, so I don't know Georgia very well. I know Pennsylvania well. But what, I, what I've been able to follow from Georgia, I mean, the, the, the governor and the secretary of state there, I don't know, it would be too strong to say that they at least seem kind of spineless. Um, that, that they're being pushed around by Stacey Abrams. And I, I'll tell you, the, these, these, these liberal Democrats, Dan, they are very aggressive everywhere, including the state of Pennsylvania. We've got Governor Tom Wolf. We've got our Secretary of State, Bukvar is her name. We have, uh, we have an attorney general who's just an absolute cultural, political radical by the name of Josh Shapiro, and we have a Pennsylvania state Supreme Court that they are elected Supreme Court, and it's five Democrats and two Republicans. And the five Democrats just they're just simply activist judges. They they well, simply do to, whatever they do. Yeah. To, uh, for example, ex, uh, just by judicial fiat, extend the uh, period for mail-in ballots by seventy-two hours. Right, and and also too. So I, I mean, it, it is the province of the the province of the, of the Pennsylvania legislature to make election law for the state of Pennsylvania, and here came the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court, and they they attempted to change the law. They allowed in all these mail-in ballots, and then when you challenge it, they they throw out your cases. And the most recently, I think this was last Friday. They they told the the Trump team, oh now you're too late. <laughs> it's it, it's it's just it's scandalous how, how how bad it is. I really can't even begin to explain to people just how bad it is. But we're looking at now the very latest data on the state of Pennsylvania. I guess Dan that it looks like they. The Commonwealth of Pennsylvania sent out, um, this is according to the Secretary of State website, 3.1 million mail-in ballots, 3.1 million mail-in ballots. And we initially thought it was 1 to 2 million. 
but now, now it looks like it was 3.1 billion million. That's what they're claiming, and the number of those that were that were filled out and returned is nearly 2.6 million. So if you're doing the math, that's like a 90 percent return rate, which frankly I find hard to believe. I, I mean, I know, and I know this is anecdotal, but I, I've had so many people, I mean, I live in Pennsylvania, who, who say, yeah, I got a mail-in ballot, by, but I chucked it, and I went instead, and I, and I did a provisional ballot, I went down to my local center, and there, and I've, had, I've met people who got two mail-in ballots. Well, right, and, and, and it, the, the, yeah, the, the other thing about these ballots, too, is it's not just the return rates are uh, a statistical anomaly, the spoilage rates are a statistical anomaly on the low side. I mean, you usually have in the 2 to right. 20% range, uh, a recent mail-in ballot election in New Jersey or this past summer, 20% spoilage rate. Uh, you have exponentially more mail-in ballots in some of these states and actually a lower spoilage rate, which is just one of the many statistical anomalies with respect to this election. Well, that's exactly right. And then of these, the number that would have had to have voted for Joe Biden in order to flip this, I mean, I, I, and I was writing on this for American Spectator about three weeks ago. I, I said, don't worry. I mean, Biden is going to need a minimum of 80% of these to be able to catch Trump. And well, apparently that's what he got, if you believe that. Not even 80% of the mail-in ballots were, were registered Democrats. I mean, that's an important thing to understand. We're looking at this wondering, where, where in the world, where, where did it come from? Where, where, where did this increase for Biden come from in the, in the state of Pennsylvania? We're having a hard time figuring it out, other than it came through mail-in ballots in some way. And well, maybe right. even I mean, worse. Yeah, yeah I mean, otherwise, how do you get the volume, right? Because it's not the, it wasn't the split, it was the volume that did Trump in. It was, yeah. I, I, I guess it was the volume, and um, I know you wanted to talk about this. The piece I wrote for American Spectator. This is really scandalous. It's called Pennsylvania Bombshell. Biden ninety nine point four percent versus Trump zero point six percent. Who is a former combat officer? He has a background in Army intelligence, information gathering, electronic warfare. He testified that there was a, a batch of about six hundred thousand votes. They came in in 90 minutes in Pennsylvania, and I've, I've got the exact transcript here. I had to listen to it and type this transcript myself, Dan, because nobody in the mainstream media reported on this. He is Paul Kanger, professor of political science at Grove City College in Grove City, PA, contributor to the American Spectator, author of The Devil and Karl Marx, Communism's Long March of Death, Deception, and Infiltration. Professor Kanger, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. All right, Dan. Anytime. Take care. All right. Coming up, we're going to continue our discussion of statistical anomalies and uh, the questions that uh, remain asked and unanswered with uh, Patrick Basham for the Democracy Institute. So stay tuned for that. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show we've been talking about statistical anomalies a lot since the november 3rd election most of these statistical anomalies if not all 
seeming to redound to the benefit of Joe Biden, which is in, is in itself a statistical anomaly. And at some point, you get into sort of the Powerball Plus arena of odds that all of this could have transpired just by chance or happenstance or just played out that way. The arguments uh, against uh, reading too much into these statistical anomalies sort of take the form of, hey, yeah, um, he outperformed Obama in the areas where he needed to, metropolitan areas and not in some other areas. Uh, He got more votes. Trump got more votes. Well, this is the result of population growth and and plus a high turnout election, uh, plus the introduction of mail-in ballots. But again, there's no evidence of of fraud. There's just evidence of statistical anomalies in an anomalous year with the uh, anomalous administration of an election. So uh, they concede the point that this is uh, different than in past elections. And there are some statistics which break from tradition. But uh, that does not mean anything of the sort that the Trump campaign alleges it means in terms of mass fraud or even localized fraud in states like Georgia or Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or Arizona. For a response to that response, somebody who has pointed out some of these statistical anomalies, we're pleased to be joined by Patrick Basham. He is the director of the London and Washington, D.C.-based think tank, the Democracy Institute. Patrick, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's my great pleasure. Thank you. So um, you uh, penned a piece that referenced yesterday, actually, about some of these statistical anomalies. And the response uh, you heard me describing is sort of a wave off. Yes, there are some anomalies and yes, there are some questions. And that's why we have recounts and that's why we have courts of law. And those claims uh, made by the Trump campaign are falling on deaf ears. Those statistical anomalies can be explained away by the uh, extraordinary nature of the year 2020. And uh, otherwise, uh, the Trump campaign doesn't really have much of substance to point to. Yeah, that is the pushback. Um, Unfortunately, I don't think it has any logical, intellectual, rational legs. You mentioned in your introduction, you talked about Nevada and Georgia. We have a situation in Nevada where Biden is currently ahead by 33,500 votes. But in Nevada, there were almost 80,000 more votes in the presidential election. That is that ballot line for the presidency. Then there were ballots cast in Nevada. So, well, this, this is it. I mean, is it, I would like to think it's really important that we know that and that, that something is done about that. I would like to think my idealistic self says, please let that simply be human error on a mass scale. My cynical side, some would say my realistic side, thinks it cannot solely be human error, right? You have precincts in Georgia where the number of ballots exceeded the number of people living in those precincts by two and a half times, right? You have counties in Pennsylvania where Biden got more votes from Democrats than there are Democrats. If every Democrat showed up, he couldn't have got that many votes. It's just absolutely remarkable. And you you have a situation where in Pennsylvania, for example, you had 23,000 absentee ballots that have impossible mail return dates. That is, they were returned before the ballots were sent out because these things are recorded and you've got another 86,000 that came back the day they were sent out or the day after and as wonderful as the u.s postal service is this is just impossible stuff yeah those are uh, very good um, issues to raise and and my frustration with the trump campaign and the legal defense team you uh, or the legal team i shouldn't say not defense, legal team, is um, 
These are very specific cohorts of ballots you're referencing, cohorts of votes in, in states, and they should be driving to specific answers to these specific instances that raise legitimate questions. Instead, we sort of get sort of generic massive voter fraud. We have uh, discussions about poll watchers who weren't allowed to count votes and, and hundreds of thousands of votes that they couldn't see, and maybe there's fraud there. So that they seem to be a little bit all over the board rather than focusing in and saying, hey, there's. 20,000 people, according to Matt uh, Brainard's Voter Integrity Project, who no longer meet residency requirements, who cast ballots in Georgia. Uh, let's look at those 20,000 votes. Let, let, let's look at those votes that you just mentioned that have impossible postal return dates, the 23,000 and the 86,000 in Pennsylvania. Let's look at those specifically. I want specific answers to those specific questions about those yeah. specific groups of ballots. We're not getting those. No, you raise a very good and very important point. I think it is fair to say that the Trump legal team is pursuing every avenue that they can conceive of. Some would say that means that you know they're throwing darts at the board, hoping that to hit a bullseye with one of them. The one thing I would say in their defense is that most of these legal setbacks that they have suffered have not been as a result of the judge or the court saying, I've looked at the evidence. You just don't have enough here. In most cases, the evidence hasn't been looked at. They've been pushed back as being on a technical issue. They don't have standing or something like that. That doesn't mean that the Trump legal team does have those specifics that they're pushing that, that you're suggesting they should be, or I would suggest they should be. But it means that we, I think we don't quite know yet the full extent of their presentation. Maybe we it'll meet, require the Supreme Court to look at it till we get to that point, uh, but they, they are in a strange position of fighting battles across the country, some at the county level, some at the state level. It may end up being a federal effort. And so given the constraints of time under which they're working, I'm not sure that there is necessarily one plan. And you could argue that's a good or a bad thing, but it appears that there are multiple plans that are operating simultaneously. And we don't yet know whether that's going to turn out to be madness or genius. If they just start to pile up, too. I mean, I yeah. mentioned this the other day. Uh, according to exit polling, Biden got a smaller share of self-identified union households than Obama did. Mm -hmm. So he's he's getting a smaller share of the black vote. He's getting a smaller share of union households, you know, except in those urban centers in swing states where he needs them, combined with uh, some of the other discussions, points that we had with respect to specific batches of ballots. But just sort of generally the idea that uh, the, the, the core constituencies of the Democrat Party are not coming in for Joe Biden where he needs them to accept where he needs them to. It, it's, it's a little bit yeah. – that's not evidence of anything except it, it is curious at minimum. If we present it today to someone who was well-informed about American elections but had been absent from the past month, did not know what the result was, and you gave them the breakdown – of how, what Trump's, where his vote came from, how he did with specific groups vis-a-vis -vis 2016, vis-a-vis -vis the generic Republican, how Biden did vis-a-vis -vis Clinton, vis-a-vis -vis Obama. You looked at all of that, you presented that, and you said to this person, who do you think won the election? My guess is that 99 out of 100 informed people would say, well, Trump obviously won the election, because Biden couldn't win with that kind of a performance as a Democrat. And Trump overperformed in many areas for a Republican. And yet... We are told that Biden won. And depending on which numbers you, you go by, you could say even he won comfortably. It is absolutely bizarre. 
Uh, I want to pick it up right there when we return with Patrick Basham, a pollster, Democracy Institute uh, founder, and um, uh, get his reaction to more of the explanations that the left provides for the statistical anomalies of the November 3rd presidential election. We'll be right back. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Before the break, we were speaking with Democracy Institute's Patrick Basham about the statistical anomalies in the 2020 presidential election. And... uh, the left's cover stories for those anomalies, saying things like, oh, natural population growth. Of course, he was going right. to get more votes. Well, well, President Obama got fewer votes in 2012 than he got in 2008. There was natural population growth during those four years, mm-hmm. too. So for him to get 12 million more votes than he got four years yep. ago, even with the mail-in ballots, considering most Trump supporters, uh, Trump voters went to the polls. I mean, it, it, you know, that's just a, that's another statistical anomaly on the yep. Trump side that you have to factor into all of these other statistical anomalies. Well, this is it. If Donald Trump had received exactly the same numerical total as 2016, you could say, OK, you know, Biden gained. Therefore, he, he found a way to win. But an incumbent president who gains votes never loses. And yep. Trump gained enormously. Right. So he held his own in terms of population growth, registration growth and all the rest of it. It it is just incredible. I mean, Trump had a phenomenal election for a Republican. And and also, too, I mean, just to to add something to that, we've talked about it. uh, You're aware of it, of course, but it bears repeating. Oh, by the way, Republicans had a pretty good night, too, in swing districts where they picked up 10 to maybe 12 or 13 seats. That's another anomaly where you're supposed to see Pelosi expand her majority in the House Mm -hmm. because they're winning swing areas in the suburbs, places like suburban communities and and urban areas. And that's not what happened on election night. That's another anomaly. That's right. The media polls and the university polls um, that we saw throughout the campaign, they were wrong about the House seats. They were wrong about the Senate races. They were wrong about state legislators, legislatures. They were wrong about the demographic breakdown of the vote. They were wrong about how many votes Trump would get. The only thing they were, quote unquote, right about is that they, as in the sponsors of those polls, the media have pronounced that Biden won the election. Yeah, and 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 the the response again, just to bat around the arguments, the response is well, yeah, that's fair, Patrick. Uh, Joe Biden is not going to set the world on fire with his charisma, but it was just about the antipathy to Trump. That's what drove people out. Is we have to get rid of Trump. I don't care who the alternative is, and so. In lieu of celebrity yeah. or or a compelling candidate, it was people were compelled to vote against Trump. That does get uh, that does get your core Democratic vote out, but it doesn't get you over the line. I mean, it's not as it's not simply that Joe Biden couldn't attract anyone to attend a quote unquote rally, but when he pulled in Barack Obama or other top you know drawers, they couldn't either. There's just there was just no there was a lack of excitement. There was no interest. And you only get so far you could only get you can go so far a certain distance with this sort of Trump anti Trump hate. 
and being against something. A lot of politicians have tried that, but you, in a presidential election, you have to win with something. You have to be in favor of something. And so, so, so much as Biden had a campaign, it was all against something, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you. Not, yeah. Yeah, you know what? I'll, I'll tell you what. Here too. So, so if 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 what they're saying is true, sort of the argument I just characterized is true, then that's fine. Then every leftist pollster, I never want to hear them use the phrase enthusiasm advantage or enthusiasm deficit again because it doesn't matter what you're saying. It actually doesn't matter. Or they'll just say this is just one of those many, many anomalies that stacked up in 2020. But after Trump is gone, then enthusiasm among among your base, you're sort of the the uh, base plus vote turnout uh, uh, argument is one we can have again. That's right. I mean, if all of these anomalies are simply um, accidental and incidental, it means that Biden is the luckiest candidate, not only in the history of American politics, probably the history of democratic politics globally. Because everything that, every time the ball bounced in a certain direction, it bounced in his direction, nationally, state level, locally, down to the precinct. It doesn't matter. Everything went his way. It just doesn't happen. If, if, you make mis- if there are errors in polling or errors in the election, in vote tabulation, they are random. They're all over the place. They may skew a little one way or the other in one city, but it's different somewhere else. But everything went his way. It just doesn't, I mean, excuse the pun here, it just doesn't add up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, <laughs> one of the anomalies that was fun, those, uh, uh, those, those ballots in, uh, in Georgia, the uh, state party chairman in Georgia, one cohort of ballots where Joe Biden got like 99.6% of the ballots yeah. that were uploaded at this particular point in time. You know, he, and he won, won a county by that margin, a small county in Georgia. He's, by comparison, uh, Kim Jong-un got 99.4% of the vote. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's just something. Patrick Basham, director of the London and Washington-based think tank, the Democracy Institute. Patrick, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Building on our conversations this hour with both Paul Kanger and Patrick Basham, I wanted to uh, uh, offer a couple of notes on the state legislative hearing in Arizona yesterday uh, that were initiated by Republicans. Now, remember, in Arizona, Republicans narrowly control both the House and the Senate uh, by a, a one-seat margin on the House, a four-seat margin in the Senate. So if they're going to move to do anything like uh, attempt to uh, prevent the certification of the election, even though I understand that Governor Ducey certified it as they were having this uh, hearing yesterday, then they need to move in mass as a caucus. And so just taking a step back for a second— I thought uh, the remarks that uh, an Arizona state senator named Sonny Borelli made were particularly poignant, um, taking on the critics that this was all trying to you know, bootstrap a win in Arizona for Trump. It's in part concern about election fraud as it pertained to the November 3rd election and p- with particular emphasis on the, president's, the, the, the presidential election. 
But it's not only that, as Borelli explained. This is about freedom and preserving our Constitution and preserving this republic. Because we are not a direct democracy. We are a republic. So we want to make sure that we're guaranteeing that everybody's right to vote it is protected. It is, is, it's sovereign. It's your own sovereign right is guaranteed, and you're entitled to it based in the, in the Constitution. So it's not just about President Trump. This is about everybody as a whole. But we want to eradicate this, any kind of criminal behavior or infiltration in the system, is that's, which is totally wrong. That's why we have a rule of law. And Arizona State Rep. Mark Fincham, colleague on the House side of uh, Senator Borelli, said yesterday, we are clawing our electoral votes back. We will not release them. That's what I'm calling on our colleagues about the House and the Senate to do. Uh, Fincham believing there is enough evidence of voter fraud to invalidate the uh, assignment of the electoral votes to Joe Biden and ultimately the certification. He says he will be bringing a resolution in the next 24 to 48 hours and trying to whip his caucus mates in support of said legislative resolution. Remember the plenary power that state legislatures have when it comes to assigning electors uh, on that uh, that December 14th date with the uh, when the electoral college meets now as far as the hearing itself going back to this uh, retired colonel Phil Waldron who uh, essentially is acting as a cybersecurity expert for the Trump legal team he was the one we mentioned with uh, professor Kanger earlier in the hour who uh, talked about this uh, 99.4% to 0.6% distribution of 600,000 mail-in votes in Pennsylvania, the spike that occurred that is highly curious. Well, uh, he also addressed uh, under questioning at the Arizona legislative hearing yesterday some of the claims made by former federal cybersecurity agency head Chris Krebs, who gave that 60 Minutes interview on Sunday night, suggesting that this was a secure election and that the assertions of fraud uh, tampering with the voting system hardware, tabulation, uh, tabulation uh, manipulation. These were false. That's what Chris Krebs said. And Waldron was asked specifically about two claims he made, one that uh, the Dominion voting system's hardware not hooked up to the Internet, two that Dominion voting software was not uh, transmitting tabulations for uh, transmitting votes for tabulation uh, in foreign countries, uh, the uh, allegation of servers in Spain and Germany. This was how that exchange went. When we were talking about it, was Mr. Krebs, Krebs? Is that correct? Correct. Okay. He stated the uh, most secure election in history. He stated uh, we're not connected to the Internet. He stated no votes leave this country. This is all things he's stated. He stated publicly. So he says the website, correct? Right. So are you willing to say under oath that you have seen the connection to the internet you have seen it go off shore to germany frankfurt are these things that you have personally seen and can say that is not true our our white hat hackers yes they have that traffic in the packets so why would he why would he make that kind of comment do you think either not knowing believing the myth or not wanting the truth to, to be known. Well, we may soon find out uh, what the truth is, that hopefully so. The uh, filing that uh, Sidney Powell made in Georgia was uh, the complaint that she filed. Uh, a Georgia judge issued a TRO for three counties in Georgia to uh, not erase any of the Dominion voting software 
cards, as it were, so that uh, pending uh, and and because George, uh, because Sidney Powell is seeking a forensic review of the Dominion voting software, the, the Dominion Dominion voting systems, excuse me, hardware in Georgia, and so the state has until tomorrow to respond to the judge's temporary restraining order. And then we'll see if he grants Sidney Powell her request to have an independent forensic expert review, look into those Dominion voting systems machines in Georgia, and we'll see what we find. And perhaps some of these disputes on substance, mutually exclusive positions, either these machines were hooked up to the Internet, either votes were transmitted to servers in foreign countries or they weren't. Maybe we can start to get some answers to these questions that continue to persist as open questions to bring some of the outstanding issues into focus rather than seeing these outstanding issues continue to uh, multiply. Uh, Now, uh, the other thing that's happening, as you see with the two legislative hearings and one upcoming in Michigan, is two tracks. And Giuliani mentioned this over the weekend. Joe DiGenova, former U.S. attorney for D.C., who was on uh, Uh, Newsmax the other evening saying the same thing, that essentially what you have is Trump lawyers addressing the jury, the jury in the form of state legislators who have plenary power with respect to electors, thus these hearings in these relevant states, as well as in simultaneous, simultaneously addressing judges in courts of law around the country. And uh, this is all going to come to a head one way or the other in the next two weeks, perhaps even before, but it would be nice to knock out some of these issues that are in dispute so we can get to the ones uh, that, uh, so we can minimize the, the number of issues that are in dispute and get to some answers so people can either have confidence that what uh, those who administered the election are saying is true, just statistical anomalies, uh, secure election, as Chris Krebs said, or something uh, closer to what uh, the Trump legal team is arguing. Uh, This needs to be ascertained in the next two weeks, or at least some guidance given on some of these outstanding legal issues. This is Dan Proff. Listen to podcasts of the show at danproffshow.com. Welcome back. I want to pick up on the discussion we were just having before the break about um, the Arizona state legislative hearing and, and importantly, potential that the Trump legal team may get the judicial hearings they seek, not because of their filings in court, but because of action that a state legislature may take that would jeopardize the electors for President Biden and thus in, and, and cause the Biden team potentially to initiate litigation. This was part of the discussion I had on yesterday's show with NYU law professor Richard Epstein. And it's worth zeroing in on this aspect of our conversation because, and so thinking through how these parallel tracks through legislative hearings, state legislative hearings, and arguments over litigation in courts of law could end up intersecting. Here's Epstein 
elucidating. What's going on in this particular case is a campaign to say that what happens is that you should literally replace the electors that were chosen by the majority of the people with somebody else. There are two ways to look at this. Her incorrect method is to say, look, it doesn't matter what the state of the evidence is. If you think that we're right, you can just simply take away the Democratic electors, put the Republican electors in their place and shift the state. And I think that that would be a major crisis. The argument that's being made is a more narrow argument is that we can prove to you that they were fraudulent ballots. Uh, this is not a question of sort of idiosyncratic, occasional frauds. This is a case of systematic fraud. That's got to be the allocation. And we can prove that. Then if the state legislature says we believe that is to be the case and replaces it, I think that it could surely be subject to a judicial challenge, which says, oh, no, 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 this was just pure politics. It wasn't there. And then you would have to get a hearing. At that particular point in time, the other side is clearly going to be given the right to say, oh, no, no, you're wrong on every one of these things. And then they're going to say, and by the way, the counts aren't sufficient. Right. And this is all argued in a court of law. And one other wrinkle that Epstein noted uh, as it pertains to the court's disposition on fraud, a situation like this, do you have to approve up uh, fraud to an extent that would clearly potentially change the outcome of the election? Or do you just have to prove the existence of substantial fraud such that it demands further inquiry to see the extent of the fraud, which may or may not turn over the election? Let me just tag another issue of nightmarish proportions that's going to come up. Suppose it turns out that you say the majority in Pennsylvania is, say, let's say 20,000 votes. I don't know what the number is. And what you can do is you can find and identify conclusively 15,000. It doesn't change the vote. And then the issue is, well, we found 15,000, but where there's smoke, there's fire. And we think it's highly likely that there were another 10,000 votes that were treated the same way and we were just unable to get. And then the other side is going to come back and say, to make this momentous a shift, you have to identify the votes. And if you look at the common law of fraud, it goes both ways on a question like this. And this is my conversation with Patrick Basham earlier in the hour on those specific cohorts of votes, getting down to the brass tacks on what you can and cannot prove up in terms of fraudulent or you know, circumstantially questionable at minimum to get uh, before a court, to get a hearing on the merits, to get to discovery with respect to the extent of fraud that may or may not have been committed in particular states and jurisdictions. Again, you're on a two-week clock to do it, basically. This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back into our uh, latest installment in advance of our long-running advocacy, frankly, openly, for school reform in the form of school choice. Uh, in this segment, multiple times a week, we talk about uh, we talk to, I should say, policymakers, which necessarily includes politicians, but also uh, the, the the deep thinkers that uh, that uh, exist in think tanks and so forth. But also the practitioners and the success stories, the practitioners, both as adults and innovators, as well as the success stories, young people who had opportunities that had previously been foreclosed to them through school choice programs at the state and local level around the country that went on to prove up the concept, prove up the concept that uh, 
all children are capable of learning, all children are capable of seizing opportunity, and therefore all children should have the opportunity to earn a quality education that sets them on a path to independent, successful living on their own terms. It was Victor Hugo in The Future of Man who commented, Nothing else in the world, not all the armies, is so powerful as an idea whose time has come. And here on The Dan Prof Show, we argue school choice as time has come, some six decades after Milton Friedman advocated for it in Capitalism and Freedom. Not all teachers' unions, not all the teachers' unions, are so powerful as to perpetuate morally bankrupt systems which are financially bankrupting cities in places like my hometown of Chicago. And it's worth noting a, a good news front on K-12 through education with so much depressing news amid the rolling lockdowns and reopenings for K-12 through systems around the country. Uh, just uh, last week, Governor Mike DeWine in Ohio signed legislation that expands the EdChoice Scholarship Program in the state of Ohio for low-income students. Performance-based educational choice scholarships now focus on the lowest achieving 20% of the schools to give, again, kids who have been uh, blocked from opportunities, discriminated against, one might argue, I would, based on their household income and their address, the opportunities that uh, that uh, are currently enjoyed in some places by only the wealthy or the politically connected. So let's talk about um, a success story, a success story in Chicago. Uh, in the Lawndale neighborhood, which is a tough neighborhood on the west side of the city. It's a place called Chicago Hope Academy. And uh, here's a little backstory on Chicago Hope from a recent piece on a network affiliate newscast in Chicago. This is a pretty cool group here. Hey. Hey. How you doing? Hello. You might think this is just happening because of the TV camera. This is Tom. Hey, guys. It's not. And they're with WGM. They're doing a little story about Hope. What are you guys learning about today? Uh, we are actually doing polar coordinates. So Anytime a visitor enters a classroom at Hope Academy, the whole class, just 15 students or so, jumps to its feet. And the student nearest the door tells you what they're studying. Right now we're learning about Hamlet. We're just trying to come up and keep working hard, do everything we got to do. They should put that on a poster around here. Well, in a way, they have. Religious slogans cover the walls, a choice that cost Hope millions in charter school funding. Also on the walls, the pennants of top-tier schools, not the ones Hope students hope to go to, the ones its graduates actually attend. I think we're too much talk and not enough walk in Western Christianity today. I mean, our saying here is preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. Lockers aren't locked because you're not supposed to steal. And it was founded by the gentleman you heard from, uh, who was quoting St. Francis Assisi, if I'm remembering correctly. He is Bob Mazakowski, president and founder of Chicago Hope Academy. He joins us now. Bob, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, um, you know, give us, uh, you get a little bit of the, the backstory on Chicago Hope Academy from that piece that WGN News did, but give us a uh, more fuller backgrounder on Chicago Hope, uh, where it came from and what it's become and what you hope it will become yet. Sure. So Chicago Hope Academy kind of morphed out of the Little League in Cabrini Green. We started in the 90s. I wrote a book about it. I got to be misplayed by Keanu Reeves. That and $3 will get on the train. So uh, and we so we scholarship some of the boys in the league. It became much more than just a baseball program. That was just a carrot to get to the kids with business people, lawyers, doctors, attorneys would meet kids from Cabrini, right? Where normally they wouldn't unless they were on their Little League team. So, but we get kids scholarships and inevitably most of them flunked out by their sophomore year in college. So we always thought, why don't we start? Uh, we've always thought about starting our own school. Um, 
I have seven of my own. I've been legal guardian for four others. So we basically raised 11 kids in Chicago. Um, and, uh, and so my, my own kids are like the Jackie Robinsons of the little league in reverse, the first white mm-hmm. players. But, mm-hmm. uh, and, um, so, uh, when the local Catholic school shut, when they knocked Cabrini down, we moved the league to the West side, which is still at one point, we were the biggest inner city little league in America with 6014. Um, but I, uh, when we moved the league to the west side, uh, the local Catholic school closed, and uh, as uh, over 150 of them have closed since 1975. And our theory is that the gangs filled the void of the parish because so much of 98 percent of the priests didn't abuse anybody. They were great people. The nuns were great. I grew up in that environment in uh, in uh, New Jersey. But uh, as the schools closed, it hurt the neighborhoods. And so um, we would say the people did the opposite of what Jesus would do. It got dangerous, so they ran away. So. But when St. Callista's closed, we bought it. We were the first ones the archdiocese sold to. This would have been 2004. Um, and we had a you know $5 million rehab. Beautiful old building, uh, like many of the Catholic schools rehab that started in, in 2004 with freshmen and sophomores. And um, so now we're in year 16, um, 287 students, uh, bought 18 acres, uh, seven blocks west. We're building a new campus there. So um, we're halfway through. It's a, it's a daunting project, but we, we'll grow to 600 students then, and the current school will be K-8. Right give now us, we're only high school. Give us, give, us so, the profile, give us the profile of the student body in terms of percentage minority, percentage low income, where you're drawing the kids from, and what's been the, the outcome for the kids that have uh, gone through Chicago Hope. Yeah, so most of the kids are, are south and west side. We actually... Uh, board some kids in certain situations. We have a convent and a rectory there. And um, we, um, uh, they, they're mostly, I would say 90, we're 90%, we were about 95% African American in the beginning. Now we're 60% African American, probably 30% Latino, 10% white and Asian. Um, so we're a lot more mixed than we were originally. Uh, but we're over 90% low-income minority students, all qualifying for the Bruce Rauners, uh, the scholarship program he instituted called Invest in Kids. Right, former um, Illinois governor, was, right? The opportunity. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, right. yeah, he was at Hope the day before the election. And so, um, uh, yeah, I actually like Bruce a lot. I mean, he was too real, I guess, right? So, um, anyway. Well, they, uh, and, so and, I mean, but that, that scholarship program is a, is a relatively recent invention. It's only been uh, up and running for a couple of years. Obviously, you existed and Chicago Hope existed for a dozen years before that. And, so sure. tell tell us about the the struggles in those first uh, uh, you know in those first years and then how uh, that policy improvement in terms of providing uh, people the opportunity to contribute to provide scholarships for kids to go to places like Chicago Hope how that's been a change for the better for yeah. Chicago Hope. Yeah, so I sold my business and bought the school, um, and uh, in '04, and then we did the rehab, and you know I had a tiger by the tail, right? You got a. Uh, it's an independent school for low-income kids with no government support. So how does that work? And a lot of people just can't figure out in the school world how that works. So everybody pays a little bit. Um, it costs about 15000 a year to run the place per student, and the average can pay 3000 So um, if I, at the end, if I had a billion dollars, I'd make the pass. you got to pay something. you got to own it. You know? mm-hmm. I figure that free, people think free country means free food, free house, free school, everything's free. <laughs> How's that working? So, um, and, and, and just let me stop. You know, let me let me stop you there because I, I'd be interested to hear how parents or guardians of the kids that uh, are educated at Chicago Hope how they react to the uh, the idea that everybody has to have some skin in the game. 
you know, they have grasped it, you know, and they, when you sit down and have a, and to be fair, we had the luxury of starting out and having our own culture right out of the gate. We didn't take over an existing situation. And so right. uh, everybody's all in, you know, there's all like someone, will, if they don't, uh, we never let anyone go because they didn't pay ever. Right. Um, you could work the summer or whatever, but often when people, they get a month or two behind and they're paying $200 a month and they've lost their job. And we're like, okay, then you're working in the cafeteria Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, right? And the initial thing is like shock. And we're like, yeah, we get here at 630 a.m. Get in here, right? So, and people have really bought into it, which is great. And a lot of it has a faith-based component too, right? So we're unapologetically Christian school. Um, uh, let's, let, let, let's hold let's hold it right there. When we come back, I want to continue uh, getting uh, giving people uh, uh, giving you the opportunity to give people sort of the full breadth of Chicago Hope Academy, both the culture as well as uh, the success stories, uh, because it seems to me this is and, and there I know there are other examples, but let's provide as many examples as we can tangible make it tangible for people this is something that could be scaled and so the question is how do we scale it beyond even what uh, you and your team are doing at chicago hope and we'll start there when we return with bob mazakowski president and founder of chicago hope academy on chicago's west side more right after this this portion is sponsored by the american federation for children the nation's largest school choice advocacy organization helping every family choose the best K-12 education for their children. Find them on social media at School Choice Now. That's at School Choice Now. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Continuing our discussion about uh, school choice and uh, profiling one of the success stories, one of the models to be replicated, I would argue, and that's Chicago Hope Academy on the west side of Chicago. We're talking to the president and founder of Chicago Hope Academy, Bob Mazakowski. And, Bob, we were talking, you were talking uh, before the break a little bit about the culture, and you started from ground zero and built up, so everybody who uh, came, families who came, the kids who came, understood what the culture was going in. You didn't have to try to recreate uh, uh, or uh, you didn't have to try to change the culture at an existing school. But I wonder now how the, the culture that has been instituted in Chicago Hope radiates out into the west side neighborhoods beyond the walls of Chicago Hope. You know, so we have a saying, hope is a movement, not just a school, because we've, you know, we've built parks. Mike Kelly, head of the park, just said we're the best public-private partnership we've ever seen. So we've actually built the fields on park property. So the neighborhood, almost everyone on the west side, if you if you're on the Eisenhower on 290, you pass the Hope sign between Western and Sacramento. That's the back of our scoreboard. But so we're really involved in the neighborhood. Ten years ago, during the housing crisis, we found that the banks will donate foreclosures to nonprofits with larger financials. And so in ten years, we've become the largest nonprofit receiver of foreclosed homes. So we don't get so many from the banks anymore, but for the stabilization trust. So we have crews working, rehabbing and flipping houses and renting them, and the profits fund the school. So um, the harder we work, the luckier we get, man. So we're right, like today, we're in eight houses right now, employing 40 guys and men and women, mostly guys, um, who are mostly low-income people. Some of them are Arnie Duncan's from the program Cred, where um, they're the 3,000 most likely to shoot somebody or get shot guys, and um, they pay them for the first six months, and then if they, if they stick, we have to pay them. And a couple of them have stuck, so most did not, but some have. So we're employing people. Rehabbing houses in the neighborhood. Uh, if you're a, 
black homeowner on the west side of Chicago and you own your house, you want stop and press. I'm just telling you. So <laughs> you don't your yeah. Well, really? and, 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 and so, so, so let's go back to the kids, too, since you've got 15 years' worth of students that have run through Chicago Hope. And, and it was mentioned in that piece that we played at the beginning of our discussion that you've got pennants from schools, from colleges on the walls of the school, and it's not uh, aspirational. It's the schools that your kids, Chicago Hope kids, have actually gone to at the collegiate level. And, and so, so give us a, a sense of how... Uh, effective the the high school education has been for these kids and and you're talking about kids that probably in some instances didn't get a great grammar school education yeah i just talked to john garcia this week at princeton uh last year we had a yale columbia university brown and university of chicago admissions Uh, we have a lot of kids at wheaton so i trying to single-handedly integrate wheaton college we have 14 kids there now (laughs) including last year the wrestling cap uh jonathan huggins and those that don't go, go right up to Great Lakes Navy Base. Because, um, but when they walk across the stage, we know exactly where they're going. And I don't know how you can have a high school and not know that, like not know where everybody's going as they graduate. So we have our, our best kids just getting in the same – you know, people patronize us a little bit because we're mostly black and Latino, but our best kids are as good as any of Latin's best kids. So Latin that, Chicago, Latin, one of the best, uh, one of the best private schools, most yeah. expensive private schools in the city, right? Yeah. I think it's like 40 grand a year. There's that great scene – that's where uh, that's where Barack Obama and Rahm Emanuel sent their kids, for example. Oh, uh, Rahm, yes, but Barack was at the Chicago Lab School, which is the oh, thing. he was at Lab and then Sidley. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, I went to college with him. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, I did, well, and and I know that he stopped by Chicago Hope, but it doesn't seem like the lesson of Chicago Hope stuck with him when he became president because he <laughs> he moved to to well, eliminate the DC scholarship program, didn't he? Yeah, I don't I don't get that. Um, so I actually had voted for um, Romney. That morning. <laughs> well, he, well, but when Barack is the president, I support the president. He's the president of the United States. No, I understand. Former, you support the president. Right? That, Under, that didn't happen. Yeah, under, well, so, but, so, so talk about this, though, because, you know, I think the question is, these are great stories, and Keanu Reeves plays you in a movie, and, and maybe that for the next movie that's made about you, you'll get a better actor. You know, one can always hope. But, uh, but, but talk about this, the Chicago Hope story. Because the, I think the question in people's minds is that it takes a visionary like Bob Mazakowski and somebody who's just over-the-top committed to, uh, to making a go of something as daunting as this. And so you see one-offs like a Bob Mazakowski around the country. You see a Miss Virginia fight for the D.C. scholarship program and, and win that battle in D.C. But they're one-offs. Uh, and I, I guess the question is, is what Bob Mazakowski did on the west side of Chicago, is that scalable outside of Chicago? Can other people do this in other urban centers and in neighborhoods that are similarly situated to the west side of Chicago? Yeah, I think it's not in school. Wayne Gordon has done it over the last 40 years at, with Lawndale Community Church. They own like 10 blocks. They've got the biggest health center. They got probably spent $40 million building that on Good Avenue. Lawndale Community Church has got a, an army of people around him. Still, like, there's so much violence and shooting, but I got to tell you, Dan, it'll be so much worse if not for places like Lawndale Community Church, Chicago Hope Academy, there's a lot of things going on. We only hear the negatives, right? <laughs> but right now, finance is the most daunting things, right? Or else all these Catholic schools wouldn't have closed. And all the, all the Luther North, Luther South, all those schools have shut. So, and it's mostly financial. One, that's kind of on us because a lot of people, you know, they did well. They went to those schools and then they moved to Hinsdale, bought their second house in Naples, their third house in Breckenridge, and then, real, and then the school shut and they're wondering why it's shut. So I think people need to be called out on that to whom much is given, much is expected. But also, this you know the new the, the credit scholarship program has to stick. This is year three of four, 
And right now, uh, $61 million were provided last year. You know the biggest group of schools received the most money for the uh, tax credit scholarship program? Jewish schools. Yeah, right. Or, you know, so, no, so, I know. very yeah, organized. You know, they're organizing they got their act together. I have some great yeah. Jewish friends. Yeah. And they say that if there was money on the table, the tribe went and got the money. Yeah. So which I so which is great. So we picked up like nine fifty. We're gonna be a million five on that last year, which is you know, forty percent of our budget is gonna come from the scholarship program. And so hopefully Pritzker doesn't take it away at the end of year four because you know, now there's ten thousand kids getting these scholarships and it's gonna double, right? And and that the unions are against it because they think it's their money. When I say, well, but they, you don't have the kid. The money's going over here to Hope and other schools, and so is the kid. So you don't have to you don't have to educate that student. So why shouldn't you get the money for it? the money should follow the kid? And and I'm not downing the public schools. There's some fantastic, hardworking, great people in the public schools. They're not all lazy, stay at home. There's a lot of great people. But if a kid wants to go to an independent Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Latin lab, Parker the independent schools that are not religious, they should be able to go. Do you think it's and a... It's it's an, is, we've got to no, go get that money, too. That doesn't just slow down. We've got to find the people, and it works like this for everybody. If you make $100,000, you pay 5000 in state income tax. You can fill out forms and steer that $5,000 to Chicago Hope or any independent school that has four kids, that have four kids. So yeah. we have the kids sign up on the left. We rally people to do that. Most people say, there's no way. That's the truth. That is, it's like, yeah, that's, it really works. And when the first checks came... Two years ago, I'm like, holy shoot, this works. I did it myself. Yeah, well, you know, it's yeah. a, it's it's another. It, you're right. It's another uh, uh, incubator of success uh, that we've seen wherever school choice has been tried, dating back to Milwaukee in the uh, early '90s. And yeah. so it's it's yeah. nice that it's come to Chicago and to Illinois, and it needs and it's nice that it's seeing, being expanded in places like Ohio, as I mentioned at the outset. But of course, a long way to go. So that. Uh, more kids uh, can uh, access schools like Chicago Hope Academy. Bob Mazakowski, president and founder of Chicago Hope Academy on Chicago's West Side. Bob, thanks so much for joining us and continued success with the kids. Yeah, you too, Dan. Keep up the good work. Thank you, sir. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. When you started out with nothing and you found a man. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show, and uh, we're happy to have a discussion that will be imbued with at least some optimism and yet still be under the rubric of COVID-19. And that's because of the progress made on vaccines with the prospect, as we discussed yesterday, of uh, the vaccines being distributed, doses of the vaccines being distributed in the U.K. as soon as tomorrow. Uh, NHS hospitals supposed to be on the ready or at the ready for uh, distribution of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine there. Moderna uh, has applied for emergency use, use authorization with the FDA here. We've uh, reported stories uh, that uh, that vaccine or doses of the vaccine are being staged by, for example, United Airlines uh, for distribution as soon as the FDA is give, uh, gives the green light. So we could start getting, for example, frontline healthcare workers uh, vaccinated and uh, perhaps uh, that vaccination encourages more people to follow suit or to queue up when they're 
group has been identified as next in line and start to see infection reductions and, of course, uh, importantly, hospitalization and death reductions as well. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined again by Dr. Jonathan Ellen, pediatrician, epidemiologist, public health academician, and the former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. Dr. Ellen, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. So uh, the uh, Operation Warp Speed has been roundly praised even by Trump detractors as uh, just a, a remarkable occurrence in the history of medicine in the Western world. Yeah, I mean, it is totally remarkable. It represents the culmination of why the investment in basic sciences and translational sciences in this country has really reaped real great rewards because the ability of having, you know, the ability to take the genome right away, go out and start building vaccines for that, it's been amazing. And then therapeutics have been rushed through beautifully. And uh, the other thing that we've seen is, you know, it's, and, and this smart temper expectations about the speed at which a vaccine can be brought to market, as well as what the efficacy levels of the vaccine would be. But on both scores, the vaccines that are you know, in the offing waiting for regulatory approval have greatly exceeded what was anticipated. Absolutely. You know, they were using, particularly in the two we first heard about, Moderna and Pfizer, using technology that had never actually been brought all the way through to phase three trials, which was the mRNA vaccines. And so no one really knew what was going to work. And it like you said, it far exceeded all expectations. And with respect to um, sort of how this will proceed, um, do you expect this to at some point, uh, maybe the politicization of it to be tamped down a bit and this to become something more that the American public is more accustomed to, like uh, reminders to get your seasonal flu shot? I think so. I think that as the cases and the salience of the problem has become so widespread, the concerns about the safety of the vaccine being politicized or somehow being rushed have sort of diminished. I think the need plus the benefit are going to start to tamper down the dialogue that, you know, that's either pro or against the vaccine on the basis of. Right. And the other important piece of this, well, the many important pieces, but another important piece is as groups of professionals or just Americans generally, the vulnerable populations get vaccinated. Uh, the idea is perhaps uh, uh, some of those states and communities that are more inclined to um, use lockdown as uh, the proverbial hammer uh, and every case is a nail, they will start to resist that temptation because they'll have less reason to do so, get the economy back open again, and, and not just for people's livelihoods, but also for their lives. Yeah, we've talked about this several different ways over the last six months, that there is the general concept that you vaccinate everyone and everybody's protected from spread. There's another vision that says, look, there are key people who are both getting sick and dying and are key transmitters of the infection. And if you can adjust the people dying first and then get into the key transmitters, you take away the consequences of the cases. And if vaccines can change that dynamic sooner, then we get the herd immunity that we need from widespread vaccination. And all of a sudden, cases stop becoming so important. And it's going to be really important that as we roll the vaccines out and the um, vaccine advisory board that the CDC put together that tells us who needs what vaccine, it's supposed to be meeting today in the next couple of days. And they'll make the recommendation, you know, healthcare workers and you know, nursing homes will be among the priorities and frontline workers, you know, um, first responders. And you put that all together and you get them vaccinated over the next two, three months, then all of a sudden a case becomes a case and not a case doesn't equal death. And we're already seeing a drop in mortality, but we have a problem with hospitalizations being overwhelmed. So 
and deaths going up just on the on the gross numbers. So I think if we can start bringing the deaths down and the hospitalizations down with vaccines in key populations, the, the, the cases will stop becoming the driver. Uh, when we come back with Dr. Jonathan Ellen, former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital, we move from things a lesson controversy like the uh, the remarkable uh, speed at which vaccines have been produced to things a little bit more in controversy like some of the decisions politicians are making uh, in real time with respect to COVID. More right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Carol Markowitz, friend of the show, writing the New York Post yesterday. While the media have published a slew of articles on how to talk to your kids about the election, racism, and other tough topics, none has addressed how to help kids understand why school inexplicably opens and closes. Let me take a shot at a sample lesson plan. Start by teaching your children not to love politicians. For uh, more on this, we're pleased to be rejoined by Dr. Jonathan Ellen, pediatrician, epidemiologist, public health academician, former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital, and not a politician. Uh, Dr. Ellen, on the issue of school closures, I know we've talked about this almost every time you've been on the show, and yet we, we seem to be compelled to have the same conversation because in spite of what I think could fairly be called a scientific consensus that kids should be in schools, even when canonized public health officials like Dr. Tony Fauci say so, it still doesn't happen. And I think it's perplexing for a lot of people why it doesn't. Yeah, I think we keep getting back to the question is what is the dynamics of and is the, is the dynamics of spread? And what is it that's driving people to make that judgment? I think what was interesting in New York is they backed off of it because they realized that they were putting children at risk. And I think that we, we've talked a lot about how kids need to be in school. And the question is, are there other strategies you could use? And what's the impact of not using those strategies or using the strategies on the broader population? And people keep getting reactive and lost in this discussion over and over again. Yeah. And but but also the decision there, there's, there seems to be this uh, this need and, and this is sort of endemic to politics and politicians. You can't just stand there. You have to do something, even if it's the wrong thing. <laughs> and so. Even if it runs counter to everything we know. And so in L.A. County, you see a ban on outdoor dining in restaurants, uh, for example, even despite what we know about the relative uh, rarity of of outdoor transmission and what we've seen in other metropolitan areas. And so people see this and they see, well, this is just arbitrary. Some politicians do this in San Francisco or L.A. and other politicians do this in Chicago or New York. And aren't they aren't they they all say they're uh, men and women of science and data. So how am I to make sense of this all? Yeah, well, the truth of it is medicine in general has an aversion to um, errors of omission and have less of an anger against errors of commission. Mm-hmm. And so you're saying this truth for, as you said, politicians. But standing around and being patient and not overreacting, the risk they may be wrong, but not taking a step seems to always scare people at a time when probably less intervention is necessary. We talked about the issues about whatever mandates you would ever put together need to be as narrow as possible. Turns out the Supreme Court kind of agreed with that. But yeah, I think right. it's like that you have to be really careful when you take steps forward. And I think people always think if you take a step forward, better than doing nothing. And a lot of times the unanticipated consequences, which we've talk, been talking about for six months, 
such as loneliness, kids not being schooled, businesses shutting down, people dying because they have, you know, their businesses died. All those things seem to be forgotten because the errors of, you know, the, you know, if you make an error of not doing anything, it's looked at as much worse than the error of trying to do something. Well, right. And, and, you know, as we look around the world, too, for a little comparison and contrast, particularly since uh, so many of the people that promote these lockdown policies consider themselves citizens of the world, we see, for example, in Japan, 2,100 plus suicides in October alone. By comparison, fewer than 2,000 people in the country have died from COVID-19 in 2020 now. So more suicides in October than have died from COVID-19 all year. And Japan has a problem with suicide. They've had historically high rates, although they were falling a bit. But uh, the authorities there attribute uh, some of those suicides to the mental health issues associated with things like unemployment and lockdowns in Japan, just as we've seen that with respect to some of the mental health data in, in this country. Um, you know, that sort of thing. And, and the sort of thing that we heard early on from David Beasley at the U.N., uh, a world food program about uh, locking down countries in the West that supply food to uh, developing nations. What you're doing is putting tens of millions of people in developing nations at risk of starvation because you're cutting off our, our ability to supply them with the food and the water, the potable water that they need. Those considerations um, uh, are, are, you know, supposedly just it's, it's, it seems like they're just fodder for commercials on late night television rather than considerations for policymakers when you're talking about acting in furtherance of human life, generally speaking. Yeah, I, like I said, I think that I think we've lost it on both sides. I mean, we've talked about this, that, that we're, you know, public health science. The best ones are the ones who recognize that we're dealing with real human beings and interventions have impact on both sides. No intervention has an impact and an intervention has an impact. When you get to people who are not true public health people, who live in, who are laboratory people or who are clinicians, they think about, they don't think in terms of the broad impact and how you can anticipate the consequences and they have a tendency for it to go with a very dichotomy. You have to take action and we're not thinking about the consequences because the science says if you do this, you'll reduce that. And they don't think about, but if you reduce that, that's called whack-a-mole. The other thing pops up and the other anticipated, unanticipated consequences. And I just, I'm always struck by how, and I put it on medicine and science as much as anything else, get stuck. You know, I think there's science that is in the lab and then there's the rest of us that have worked in public health. And public health means balancing things in a way that's different than taking care of one patient or sitting in a laboratory making experiments. Yeah, and it seems to me, I mean, one of the things that turns out to be a problem is that a lot of public health officials are as sensitive to media coverage as politicians are. And when you have uh, the uh, deep intellects in the media driving the discussion, then you're really yeah. in trouble. Um, and, uh, and, and so that, that has, I, you know, I think that a lot of postmortem on the media needs to be done here in terms of the sort of silliness that uh, they have driven with their coverage of this issue and the, all the associated well, issues. You, know, you and I have talked in trying to sort of stay on, the, on what I believe is the right policy without going into the politics. is always very hard. It's just it's yeah. this. Even writing, writing about it, you know, I really, if I put, I don't put any way to sort of say, if I read this and I woke up in one country or another country that I stand by what I wrote, and it's not pandering to any particular political stance 
or any particular angle, but it's what I think the data, you know, you know, in a reasonable way, get me to believe. And, and staying there is very hard because if you want to go on a TV show on a regular basis, <laughs> you, you got to do what they want. And that's, that's what it. happens. Yeah. Yeah, Dr. Jonathan Ellen, pediatrician, epidemiologist, public health academician, the former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. Dr. Ellen, thank you for uh, continuing to be a voice of reason and science in these discussions. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Show.com. Welcome back and to build on our conversation with Dr. Jonathan Allen, CEO, former CEO of uh, Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. This is a David Mamet column. Over the weekend in the journal, David Mamet, by the way, uh, the greatest living American playwright, a Chicago, won a great Chicago in as well. Cab driver turned turned great playwright. Uh, he, um, oh, what was it, six or seven years ago, maybe? The uh, scales fell from David Mamet's eyes. No more would he be a West Coast liberal. Uh, he wrote the book, The Secret Knowledge. If you haven't read it, it's uh, definitely worth checking out because it speaks in part to, um, in large part, actually, to the technocracy to, to whom we have given so much deference. And um, unfortunately, it's not a performance-based deference. Is it? In his piece in the journal, Mamet writes, um, the case of government power. We are all, in a sense, fools since no one person can know everything. We have to trust others for their expertise, and we all make mistakes. The horror of a command economy is not that officials will make mistakes, but that those mistakes will never be acknowledged or corrected. And uh, additional horror if I could uh, offer a friendly amendment to Mamet's comment, is that even short of a command economy, which we don't have quite yet, is you can have this dynamic where the mistakes that were made, whether uh, mistakes of omission or commission, whether intentional or, or not, will never be acknowledged or corrected. The lack of accountability, the technocracy. Mamet asks, what about our alleged market economy, allegedly market economy? Who will be held accountable for destroying it? No doubt the destruction was carried out in good faith, but the shutdown didn't accomplish what it was supposed to accomplish. So who will be held accountable? The politicians doubling down on lockdowns at present? Doesn't seem like it. I mean, they get held accountable at the ballot box, but why would they be doubling down if they don't think there's a political benefit to it? Because it's the right thing to do? Is that how they strike you? The men and women for whom the right thing to do is the path they choose? Is that how... Gretchen Whitmer and Andrew Cuomo and J.B. Pritzker and Phil Murphy and Gavin Newsom and uh, Jay Inslee. Is that how they strike you? Mamet offers some great uh, historical examples of uh, incompetent uh, advisors to power, the uh, hand of crown, if you will, who have uh, survived despite their incompetence or worse. He um, writes of uh, this example of a, a friend who owns a restaurant. He goes, he's going broke. He had uh, seating outside, but winter approaches and heaters are back ordered until next spring. He's holding on. One is permitted to sit at his tables and eat without a mask. Indeed, how would one eat while wearing a mask? Does the virus know that one is sitting down versus standing up? Sounds like questions I've been asking for eight months. Uh, this restaurateur friend of Mammoth's greeted two regular customers on the other night, sat there at their table to chat, took off his mask. 
The customer informed him that the regulation stated that employees of a restaurant are required by law to wear masks at all times. The owner put his mask on and rose. But does the virus know he is an employee of the restaurant? With whom would he argue, being an employee and a proprietor? With the virus? The virus here is government, or at least the incompetent who advise our rulers and cannot admit the legitimacy of dissension. Absent intervention, the virus may eventually kill the host organism. Right. And per these regulars of uh, Mammoth's friend, the restaurateur, the virus may eventually kill the host organism with the host organism's help. This is Dan Prof. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Again, you can uh, follow the program at danproftshow.com. Follow us on social media at danproft and at danproftshow, including Parler. Joe Biden continues to uh, assemble what would be his administration's team, including the uh, the comm shop. Did you see uh, who's uh, heading up the comm shop? Putting the yeah. band back together everywhere on the foreign policy front and the yes. economics front, as well as in the comms front. Also, this from the Babylon Bee, the paper of record for this uh, mm-hmm. Biden administration, if there is to be one. Biden, all-female communications team, won't tell the nation what's wrong. Nation should already know. Uh, and the economics front, Nira Tandon, is being described as the head of a center-left organization called the Center for American Progress, uh, which is not center-left. There's nothing center about it. It's just hard left. She has a lot of interesting – she's been tabbed to be the Office of Management and Budget Director. She uh, does not worry about debt and deficits. She um, basically said that uh, any concern for the – has previously said any concern for the debt is mostly tactical – She's also a uh, climate obsessive. In October of last year, she tweeted a support for a proposal with sector-specific deployment pro- policies, trillions of dollars in direct federal spending, economy-wide price on carbon, mandatory emissions reductions in communities historically overburdened by pollution, and so on and so forth. She uh, has drawn some criticism from the left as well, so maybe she doesn't survive a Senate confirmation. We'll see. Much uh, another unifying figure that will punctuate a potential Biden administration, as well as the old Obama economist. You know, you got Captain Kangaroo who's going to go to Treasury and you got Jared Bernstein, the uh, architect of the Obama stimulus, who predicted that uh, that rather modest bailout by today's standards of uh, seven hundred fifty billion dollars would push the unemployment rate uh, below seven percent by the autumn of 2010. He was. uh, off by about 60%. It was at 10% at that time. You have uh, other Keynesians of various stripes and uh, climate tinkerers and central planners and so forth that make up this team. So you're going to see um, massive spend. Oh, by the way, you also have one, just FYI, because she's yeah. gotten some some profile. Cecilia Rouse, she would be his point person for the White House Council of Economic Advisors. She's from Princeton, another Keynesian from Princeton. Uh, she has... Uh, focused in part on subjects like education and the labor market. And she, her research is skeptical of the benefits of school choice. So she's a school choice opponent, just factoring that in as well, getting into education policy at the federal level in terms of the 180 that you would potentially see from Trump to Biden. 
Uh, for more on this, we're pleased to be joined by CNBC contributor Jim Urio. Jim, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And so uh, what do you think of uh, the uh, this uh, a team of best and brightest that Biden has assembled so far? Well, she said that the deficits don't matter. And if you're turning the question to me and saying, do I think the deficits matter? It doesn't matter what I think. Bitcoin is screaming at us right now that deficits do, in fact, matter, as is the gold market. And you can even throw in that stocks are as well. That's part of the whole theme that's been going on these last seven or eight months is that if the government and the Federal Reserve as well is going to be cavalier with currency policies, which they absolutely are, then you have to find alternatives for a weaker dollar. And the dollar's been on a one-way path lower, not just measured against the basket of currencies, because that, you know, that's measured against other currencies that are engaged in the same sort of uh, malarkey. Uh, I, loved, I wanted to use malarkey there. Bam, I think I nailed it. I think that makes me hip. Yeah, yeah like that's that. very Biden. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's very 2020. No, but I think they're involved in the same sort of things. So that's not even a good measure of the dollar. The dollar is definitely going lower if you give a broad measure of it. And in that measure, you'd have to measure it against things like Bitcoin, gold, silver, things that people are using as proxies for fiat currency. But the point is that, like she said right now, deficits don't matter. That's the only thing I would say. If we had a government that was did not have cavalier currency policies in normal times, this would be a time, provided that they are definitely putting these you know, draconian uh, policies to lock down people for extended periods of time, it was the right time then to make up with that with extra spending, as long as we're confident that that will go away as we come out of this. I'm not confident of that at all, and neither is the Bitcoin market. So it, it seems to me, uh, if you're thinking about staying in the market or putting all your money in Bitcoin, you stay in the market in the short term, perhaps, under the thinking that, uh, look, we have uh, rent seekers all around a Biden administration. We have a spendthrift Congress and and we would a White House if Biden is installed. And so they'll prop up. I mean, you know, corporate the corporate rent seekers combined with the, the profligate spenders in D.C. will continue to prop up this market until it collapses. And I'll bet that it won't collapse for a little while yet. So I'll stay in and expect uh, to see the averages continue to uh, bump up. Well, that's been my theory the whole time, too. But I'm going to throw in something that might not be the most popular thing on this show and in our circles is that the Trump administration was spendthrift as well. I mean, they, oh, yeah. they racked up a you know, tremendous amount of, of debt in a time where it didn't seem like they really needed to. You know, of course, our economy needs a lot of government spending and low rates just because of overregulation that's at four different levels. With I've never seen that as clearly as I have with the restaurant that when we bought it eight years ago, just being regulated by the federal government, the state, the county, the local town. You know, that makes small businesses, it, and, and I assume medium and large-sized businesses too, based on my experiences, difficult to really navigate those waters. So the domestic economy needs to be pushed along by the Fed and by extra government spending. And that always ends badly. It just takes a lot of time. And I, I always think of it as we're you know, sailing the boat nearer and nearer to the waterfall. And you know, at some point in time, when it begins to happen, and this all goes back to the modern monetary theory thing that we've talked about on the show like four or five times, when this begins to happen, it's too late to reverse it. So you have to be careful with your currency. I mean, there's, there's, uh, history is, just has mountains of evidence against people who were, you know, the pride cometh before the fall. And our, our currency is the reserve, and nothing's going to challenge it right up until the point that it does. Yeah, but so why don't uh, we just look at this uh, in a Schumpeterian way and say, these are just the creative gales of destruction in a market economy, uh, given this is a 
government-induced gale that's creating this destruction. But uh, <laughs> there'll be uh, opportunities uh, that abound uh, once but the— But it's uh, not an invisible hand. It's a very, very visible— It's very visible. <laughs> it's a visible fist, actually. It's a visible fist. It's giving a uh, knockout punch to business. And I don't mean to chuckle about it yeah. all, it's no laughing matter. Of course, right. Yeah, but so, so, but so what about—but so, you know, they'll snap back uh, once the dust settles uh, and uh, the strongest will survive and there's no problem here. Not only will the strongest survive, it's going to be an enormous roll-up to the strongest will be the only one survive. So we talk about wealth inequality, and you want to, to branch that down to, like, in, in small business. The businesses that are good and are going out of business because, you know, they were leveraged a bit, and in normal times they would have done fine, those are going to be taken over, and there's going to be more, you know, accumulation, and, and all of a sudden there's just going to be chains because those, some of those were the ones that had deep enough pockets to take out to take out everybody else, and that does that not that's not just the restaurant industry is a metaphor for that. That happens everywhere. This has been such an enormous roll up of power and money from the middle to the top, and not just in industry. Think about it in risk assets too. You know, everyone it's going out of business. People are unemployment's at you know at some points in time all time spikes, and the government throws money at it. Most of that money ends up in risk assets, whether it be property, stocks, Bitcoin, gold, which are the things that the wealthy own. So the wealthy have done extremely well in this at the expense of the middle, and that's yeah. business and personally. It seems to me this is a key point because so it's, you know, when the government steps in, now you have force being delivered to extract from some and give to others, and it's not uh, the uh, Marxist utopian world of uh, from those who have to those who need. No, it's in point of fact from those who have a little to those who have a lot. So these government policies, we, we talked about this in the context of schools or the economy. Oh, go ahead and shut down the schools because I'm rich and I have choices. Go ahead and shut down the economy because I'm rich and I have choices. Government policy here has done exactly opposite of what most of the politicians prattle on about, which is protecting the middle and those who need a helping hand or those who need opportunity. It's squelched opportunity. It's squeezed the middle for the benefit of those who don't need the help but are happy to take the benefits. I mean, this is perhaps the greatest example of backdoor rent-seeking in American history. No, there, there's no question about it, and anyone who wants to take the other side of that debate will do so in, at their own peril. They're going to lose that. We're not all in this together, and every time you hear those words uttered, it's by people who are either wealthy and their assets are shooting through the roof, they're government employees who it's absolutely guaranteed paycheck, um, but they're not the people who are truly affected by this is the middle on down, particularly the people in the service industry who have just been wiped out. And, and, and they think, oh, well, we'll just give them extra unemployment or we'll give them universal basic income, which, by the way, universal basic, basic income, I think, is one of the whole major points of this thing is that if it all gets too bad, we'll just throw that in. And that is a yoke. And that is people don't understand. Everybody thinks they want a paycheck without working. I, I don't think that's a great idea at all. A- AOC, AOC right. said last week, pay people to stay home. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, people who aren't who aren't uh, you know uh, producing and contributing to society. Let's have a bunch of people like that. That sounds like a really good mental and emotional way to go through life. I it just I hate even the sound of it. He is Jim Urios, the NBC contributor and owner of Brands. Jim, thanks so much for joining us as always. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. You can do magic. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. 
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. John Kerry has been uh, brought back from the dead to be the uh, climate czar, eco czar. Yeah, which is again, it's always interesting how, and it's not just Democrat socialist administrations. Republicans do it too, but I think the Democrat socialists enjoy it more that we apply the titles of Russian royalty to a domestic political officials in this country. It's always a bit unnerving to me. I don't like czars. Well, Not a country of czars yeah. and czarinas, but uh, yeah, John Kerry is the eco-czar after uh, being the uh, lead surrender first diplomat for the Obama administration for a time, you'll recall. And he gets a seat at the NSA when they have their meetings. He's Not only is our, he's, he's in on the process. He gets to sit there. He yeah. just can't say anything. Oh, okay. <laughs> just as uh, John Kerry, upon uh, being rolled out, and I do mean that literally with the, resp- uh, with the rest of the Biden national security team last week. President Joe Biden, President Joe Biden will trust in God, and he will also trust in science to guide our work on earth to protect god's creation oh it's wonderful that sounds exciting we'll uh, ask daniel turner if he's similarly enthused daniel turner founder and executive director of power the future daniel thanks for joining us appreciate it so john Kerry, as the uh, eco czar i mean he's not going to be alone uh, obviously the the administration's yeah. disposition is very gavin newsom-esque in terms of the elimination of fossil fuels so what, what are we to make of joe biden being on again off again in terms of banning fracking and uh, the natural grass revolution that's powered frankly what was to the extent there was any recovery during the obama years it was powered by the fracking revolution that's something that joe biden seems to want to undo although he's offered mixed messages on the topic he really has and that's been disconcerting for this industry and i don't really trust the rhetoric that he came out with during the debates and when the numbers were tightening i trust what he said for the two years on the campaign trail and for two years he said he wanted to ban fracking for two years he said he wanted to eliminate fossil fuels as does uh, kamala harris even more radically than Joe Biden. So the fact that he unveiled someone like John Kerry, he really is going back to the old Obama playbook where he is going to punish this industry ruthlessly. Yeah, and, and so it's it's what's passed on against the consumer in terms of airline tickets and price at the pump, uh, so to speak, but also that it necessarily implicates the cost of doing business. And boy, this is the wrong time to increase the cost of doing business almost regardless of sector, isn't it? Yeah, and and that's one of the struggles I have with working in this energy space and why I started this organization is because sometimes energy isn't as exciting or as sexy as gun control or, or other issues, but energy really undergirds absolutely everything we do, everything that is grown manufactured, shipped, produced, etc. It all requires energy. And the fact that we have so much of it in America and we have it at such an inexpensive price point is good for consumers. It's good for the average person. It means our goods and services are at a lower cost. And when we see this in- incoming administration punish it, people forget that under Obama, gas averaged around $4 a gallon for eight years. President Trump administration, they didn't find any new oil reserves. They didn't invent any new technology to get to them. They just let the markets do what it does best. And we've produced more oil than ever before. It's amazing, but Biden is going to reverse that. You've had uh, GM fold in with the potentially incoming Biden administration when it comes to things like uh, fuel efficiency standards, uh, uh, drop their alliance with uh, Trump, uh, the Trump administration with respect to California uh, energy policies, just as one example. 
Um, I wonder how concerned you are about rent-seeking corporate America folding in with this radical left uh, environmental agenda when it comes to energy policy. Yeah, and that's a great way to phrase it because that really is what we will be seeing. People think that the fossil fuel industry, sometimes they say like big oil, right? We do that slur a lot. Big corporations aren't necessarily aligned with America's interests and they're not always aligned with the energy workers' interests. Uh, I don't represent them. I represent the men and women who work in these oil fields and in coal mines in rural parts of America that don't have powerful voices. But if you're the big corporations, you kind of love a big activist president like a Joe Biden will be. Again, take the green industry, buy stock in green companies, because Joe Biden is going to mandate you buy their products. Just like the healthcare companies under Obamacare, you were forced to buy their products. You're going to be forced wind power, solar panel, uh, electric vehicles, batteries, etc. They're going to force governors, mayors, municipalities to use these products, so they're going to be forced to buy them. And so if you're in collusion with the government, boy, it's a good way to make a profit. And also, uh, you know, I assume we're going to get back to government as venture capitalist in the green sector, too, like we had famously during the Obama years with uh, with uh, ventures like Solyndra. Yeah, and they'll call it investment, right? That will be the new favorite word. We're going to invest $2 billion in X, Y, or Z, and no one's going to follow up if it actually worked, if it created any jobs. It doesn't matter. He's going to get... Uh, all of the praise for this investment, and then the media will ask him about his favorite ice cream color, uh, ice cream flavor, and his socks color. Mm-hmm. And it, what about that too? I mean, uh, worrying about you know, it's one thing to not be able to pass a big thirty trillion dollar Green New Deal. It's another thing to do it piecemeal, and as you say, sort of euphemize, use euphemisms like investment as the means to get things through the Senate with maybe just a co- the couple Republicans you need that you couldn't otherwise get through the Senate. And it could be including incentives for states to go the way of California with mandating solar panels for new home construction and other such uh, you know, onerous mandates that are underwritten by taxpayers across the nation. Yeah, and California is the model for America. And it breaks my heart to say this because it is a beautiful state, but I don't want that model. And every state should be fearful of what California is. You know, over Thanksgiving weekend, 9,000 residents had no power, and that is by government force. The government turned off their power because their electric mm-hmm. grid does not compete. At the height of, of summer, when everyone had their air conditioning on and it was hot, 160,000 Californians at one point had no power because the government decides, well, we don't have enough electricity being generated, so that neighborhood gets turned off. And what are the neighborhoods that get turned off? Right. It wasn't Google's headquarters. It wasn't Facebook. It wasn't Beverly Hills or Silicon Valley or Malibu. It's regular folks like me. So we are going to go the way of we're going to get go the way of California. And and is that a future we want? And when you're the the Democrat Socialist Party, what's important is that uh, Elon Musk gets the subsidies he needs to build a a lunar or a a shuttle to Mars and and a colony there on the red planet, as opposed to people in like places like the Rio Grande Valley or West Virginia having jobs where they can make ends meet. Yeah, and, and we've seen Elon Musk become the second richest person in America um, because government has subsidized his electric vehicles, and in the Obama years, they gave people a credit to buy them. So he, he's a genius, right? I wish right. I could come up with some product and make the government have people buy it from me. R- remind want us, me to buy. <laughs> yeah, I know. Remind us again, too, just the the, the, the 
the size and scope of the energy sector in this country uh, with respect to what we saw during the Obama years of where the jobs were created and uh, what energy independence meant for the economy more generally, because that is now in jeopardy. Yeah, I and mean, we're talking about 15 million jobs. Um, it is about 6% of our entire GDP. It undergirds everything else. Not only that, even green technology is made from fossil fuels, right? The, the solar panels, the, the, the silica that goes into each solar panel is only forged in a kiln that's burning with coal. I don't know why we can burn coal to make solar panels, but we can't burn coal to make electricity. He is Daniel Turner, founder and executive director of Power of the Future. Daniel, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. In case uh, you were part of the group that thought uh, that identity politics would go away after the November 3rd election, if Joe Biden won, much like those who believe COVID-19 would go away after the November 3rd election, if Joe Biden won, uh, here to continue disabusing you of those notions. Uh, latest example, NASDAQ is now pushing for SEC approval of a rule that requ- would require public companies on its exchange to have at least one woman director and one diverse director, quote unquote, meaning a director that self-identifies as an underrepresented minority or LGBTQ, self-identifies. You know where that goes. The exchange is also pushing for its more than 3,000 companies to be forced to report data on board diversity or, quote unquote, face consequences, including having to publicly explain why they haven't done so. Ah, the uh, walk of atonement. Uh, for the boards of these NASDAQ-traded companies if uh, the SEC approves of their proposed rule. Oddly enough, as Zero Hedge notes, there's still no requirement that board members of these publicly traded companies need to know how to read financial statements. But, of course, we digress. The important thing here is the signaling associated with the skin color or gender identification or sexual orientation of board members of these public traded companies because that's what's important. A related story, a woman who worked at the Starbucks in New Jersey, in a Starbucks in New Jersey, has filed a wrongful termination suit saying she was fired for refusing to wear an LGBTQ pride T-shirt. This happened uh, a couple of years ago, suit making its way to the public arena, that despite the managers knowing of her religious beliefs, her requesting Sundays and certain certain evenings off to attend church gatherings, she was fired for not wearing a LGBTQ pride T-shirt. Uh, the uh, missive from corporate to this uh, barista was that her comportment was not in compliance with Starbucks core values, very much akin to what Justice Alito had to say a couple of weeks back about uh, what's happened in our time of COVID and how it is not inconsistent with the repression associated with the Obergefell decision where it is not enough to be tolerant. It is not enough to redefine. You must be in the business of celebrating things that you otherwise disagree with, lest you be torn asunder by the state or your employer on behalf of the state. 
For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined by Michael Warren Davis, the editor of Crisis Magazine. M.W. Davis, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, hello. It's good to be back. So um, the uh, identitarian onslaught against uh, people of faith or just against uh, people who believe in a meritocracy or people who believe that other people are more than their skin color or their gender identification continues. Yeah, that'll, that, uh, I remember when I was in high school, I went to a Catholic high school, and uh, we had mandatory ally badges. All the, all the faculty had to wear ally badges on LGBTQ awareness days. So this is, uh, this is a trend that has been slowly progressing, obviously, from, uh, from the lowest levels of the, the private sector, and it's you know, probably going to become law. But, you know, look, this is, this is again, this isn't anything new. The uh, corporations have been corporate leaders, rather, have been trending left for, for decades and decades. They're going to impose this own regime on themselves, and it's going to hurt their profit margins. And, you know, let me play you the world's smallest fiddle. Yeah, although there's, um, you know, some question about whether it really is going to hurt their profit margins. I mean, look at uh, Jeff Bezos, who's increased his net worth by, say, $90 billion since the beginning of COVID. He's not suffering despite the fact that uh, the Amazon Post, which he owns, and other such adventures that he's on are all of a left nature. That's the that's the danger of monopoly, isn't it? That uh, eventually the court, you know, Hilaire Belloc talks about this in his book, The Free Press. How there's you know there, there's absolutely no guarantee of truth if money men control the media because um, you know we we talk we conservatives talk about the dangers of big government and that's absolutely true. But there's also an inherent danger in big business because whether or not whether someone's going to coerce you by you know, sending the police to, to your door with uh, with shotguns or whether they're going to coerce you by, for instance, the World Economic Forum is trying to move towards a cashless society. They want all transactions to be conducted over credit and debit card, which means that something could happen to you like what happens to a bunch of right-wing groups right now on PayPal where they're denied, uh, they're denied access to the service. So they could literally just shut off your money supply um, with, the, with the press of a button. And, uh, and if, if, the, if, the, if the media is owned by these tyrants using not so soft power, but softer than police officers with shotguns, if there's no one to stand up to these people, um, then, there's, then who, you know, where's, the, where's the backlash going to come from? Where's the resistance going to come from? So that's what, you know, Jeff Bezos is, is kind of the, he's the, 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 the new Stalin, the new Cromwell. He's the, you know, he's the, 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 the model for all future tyrants, not to, not to take control of the government first necessarily, but to take control of all the private uh, institutions that run public life. That's, uh, that's the way forward. Uh, when we come back with Michael Warren Davis, editor of Crisis Magazine, what to do when libertarians won't defend liberty. We'll be right back. Oh, that ain't working. That's the way you do it. Get your money for nothing. Get your chicks free. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Michael Warren Davis, editor of Crisis Magazine. And before the break, uh, making the um, interesting point about Jeff Bezos being sort of the new Cromwell to take control of all of the private institutions. And then all you really have to do is ally with government or have government ally with you or take over the governments uh, uh, subsequently. And uh, then, you know, you're in the position of uh, ink sock, as it were. Uh, yeah. I uh, you you wrote a piece recently about uh, libertarians, our friends over at places like uh, Reason Magazine, and um, why they suck. Uh, <laughs> 
So I'll, I'll let you uh, well, elaborate on on that uh, on that top line. Well, he, let, let, let's put it this way: there's a, there's a huge difference between the, the folks at Reason who I think are very wrong, but they're committed ideologues, uh, and the ordinary person who calls himself a libertarian or votes for libertarian candidates. Now, the the the, the impetus behind the story is the fact that the libertarian candidate for president, Yo Jorgensen, received rather her, the, the the margin of votes that she. <laughs> Sorry, the number of votes that she received uh, in Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, and Pennsylvania exceeds the margin um, that uh, Biden, by which Biden won over Donald Trump. So, which is a roundabout way, I guess, of saying that if those libertarians had voted for Mr. Trump, then Mr. Trump would have won re-election fairly handily. It was the, the libertarian, if, if not the uh, the frauds, the, the electoral fraudsters. It was the libertarians that spoiled the election, which baffles the mind because because you know the the uh, we, we I think every common sense individual knows that Donald Trump, whatever you think of his sort of his protectionist agenda, etc. Um, Donald Trump is not going to increase the size of government more than Joe Biden. will, And so the libertarians sort of shot themselves in the foot on, on that count. It was, uh, it, and, and I don't think ordinary conservative voters are going to forget that. We're going to, we're going to hold them accountable as well. We should, because they ruined the election. They got Joe Biden elected. Well, there's there's it's yes, it's interesting, although there's I guess there's two arguments in response. One is that, uh, hey, I don't like either candidate and it's uh, my right as American to not participate or to participate in support of a third party candidate, even though I know that third party candidate isn't going to win. That's a reflection of my you know, moral position on the race. So that's that's one argument. The, the, more, um, the more disquieting argument is that so many of those people who vote libertarian that are not the ideologues who are well-versed in, you know, uh, Ayn Rand, uh, they uh, really don't necessarily even understand what they believe because they start from a godless premise, and so they get to godless outcomes. In point of fact, there's a lot of people who vote third party for libertarian candidates that if you looked at their second choices, they'd be voting for the Democrat. Yeah, that's the. I think that's the real kicker is that if you look at the history of the uh, the, the recent history of the libertarian presidential politics, last year their nominees were Gary Johnson, or rather four years ago their nominees were Gary Johnson and William Weld. Both were sort of centrist, quote unquote, Republican governors of swing states. Um, one, Gary Johnson, New Mexico and uh, Massachusetts. A rather a bill weld in Massachusetts, which elects an unusually large number of Republican politicians for a deep blue state. Right. But uh, so, but this is, I mean, this if you're looking at the average, the demographic of the average libertarian voter, that's what they are. They're they're not as again, they're not committed Rothbardian anarcho capitalists. No, they're just they're just kind of squishy Republicans. And well, like or, all or, squishy or, Republicans, yeah. But but but, they're, but, but the, what, what they really are is cultural Marxists. Uh, who say, but you know, so, but but who say, you know, uh, d- don't tread on me, they, because wh- why? I'm a libertarian because I like to smoke dope. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, I mean, that's a good point. This is why Russell Kirk always said that uh, fundamentally, in a lot of ways, um, conserv- conservatives have more in common with socialists than with libertarians, because uh, socialists you can at least talk about objective moral truths. Whereas libertarians are totally bottomless. They don't believe that anything like objective, an objective sense of right and wrong should come to bear on politics, which is kind of, in a sense, sort of the, the end game of the desolate Marxist sort of metaphysics where the, you know, there, there is no moral order in the universe. Um, you know, that, and that's, yeah, I mean, I, I, 
the, the brighter lights of, of uh, American conservatism, like Russell Kirk, and uh, uh, recognized that there was that there was no it was not really possible to sustain any alliance between conservatives and libertarians because we just don't we don't actually see eye to eye on anything except that we have a, a shared political opposition to big government Democrats. Now, uh, talking about actual um, squishy Republicans, and to the extent that he even warrants this. Uh, characterization david brooks writing in the new york times obama's favorite republican i remember favorite republican columnist uh in a re- uh, he notes that in a recent monmouth university survey 77 percent of trump backers said joe biden won the presidential election because of fraud many of these same people think climate change is not real many of these same people believe they don't need to listen to scientific experts on how to prevent the spread of the coronavirus we live in a country an epistemological crisis in which much of the Republican Party has become detached from reality. Is that um, the fundamental problem in America, do you think, the uh, detachment of much of the Republican Party from reality, as David Brooks describes? No, no. I think that the, the Republicans are, if anything, the more attached to reality. This is the weird thing about modern progressivism is that their ideology is ostensibly dictated to them by like a cipher of expert opinions and business leaders. And it's all the, it's these people that, you know, they, 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 again, they buy newspapers, they fund think tanks that put out this data um, and this information that sort of crafts this, this frame around reality through which we're supposed to perceive everything. We're supposed to trust these people that are being paid by these big money interests to tell us how things really are. Uh, of course, when we do, the, 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 shockingly, the, the, the solution at the end of it is that we should cede more of, uh, control to the government and to big business, and we should, you know, we should vote Joe Biden so that he can shut down our economy, and then, and then we become more and more dependent on Amazon to deliver our groceries and our toilet paper to our front door. Um, that's, you know, that that's not only is that, you know, is that based, you know, on the built on the basis of a bunch of garbage. Um, but it, it fundamentally contradicts what human beings are for. Human beings are supposed to work for what they have. We're not supposed to sit at home and collect a welfare check. Um, we're supposed to go out and interact with other people. We're not supposed to sit at home and cower in fear. Um, you know, that, it's just, it's, it's an anti, that, that's, the, that's the overarching reality that should come before any sort of, any of this, you know, fudged scientific data or any of this quote-unquote expert opinion is that if we're, if all we're doing is sitting at home, suckling at the teeth of big government and big business, then you know that's not what human beings are made for. That's the reality. He is Michael Warren Davis, editor of Crisis Magazine. M.W. Davis, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. God bless you. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. And uh, to close out, uh, you've undoubtedly heard the story of Sarah Fuller by now. Sarah Fuller has uh, made history over the weekend. And yeah, I'm going to go into territory where normally only the intrepid like Jason Whitlock fear to tread. Uh, Sarah Fuller uh, made history by becoming the first female to uh, participate in a football game in a Power 5 conference for a Power 5 conference team to the extent that you consider Vanderbilt uh, a legitimate 
part of the SEC and a legitimate Power Five college football program, the ONA Commodores, who lost uh, forty-one to nothing to Missouri this weekend. Uh, Sarah Fuller was uh, given the opportunity as a place kicker. She's on the girls' soccer team to the extent that there is such a thing anymore, right? In the era of identifying your gender by your whim, girls' soccer team at Vanderbilt. She got a chance to uh, do a kickoff in the second half, and uh, she uh, hit a 30-yard squib kick, and now she's Jackie Robinson, apparently. It was so exciting, she said, the fact I can uh, represent all the girls out there that have wanted to do this or thought about playing football or any sport, really, and it encouraged them to be able to step out and do something big like this. It's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, tokenism is awesome. Something uh, else about this that was underreported, this was picked up at OutKick, uh, to highlight what a PR stunt this was for uh, apparently the identity-obsessed Vanderbilt Commodores football program. Joe Kinsey making the note uh, at OutKick.com that uh, she gave the halftime speech to her fellow Commodores who were getting their asses kicked by Missouri. She hadn't even stepped on the field yet. She gave the halftime speech on Saturday's game. As uh, Kinsey writes, um, where do we even start with the nonsensical Disneyification of the football season that Corona bros and Corona sisters didn't want to happen in the first place? Uh, Jason Whitlock calls it sort of the make-a-wish culture of America. Uh, she uh, gave a speech where she basically said, you know, you need to... We need to be lifting each other up. We need to applauding every, be applauding every first down we get, uh, and so on and so forth. Well, sure, they're so few and far between for Vandy. Uh, Kinsey writes, you mean to tell me that a kicker who was pulled off the women's soccer team and who started practicing with the football team on Tuesday was given the floor to lecture teammates on Sunday, on Saturday? Excuse me. Do you think freshman players on the women's soccer team who've ever seen the field get up and give speeches to players who've given four years to a program? Nope, not happening. There's no further debate about this. Fuller was used as a publicity stunt, and it is clear as day ESPN had its hands in it. Don't be shocked if we find out soon that ESPN had cameras rolling during Fuller's hero speech. Sure, she's the combination of uh, Jackie Robinson and Newt Rockney. A kicker giving a halftime speech. Think about it for a minute, writes Kinsey. Those of you who thought this was a sincere act from a Vandy program desperate to field a team during uncertain COVID times have been had. This is all nonsense. Indeed it is. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. This is the Dan Prof Show.